Welcome to the Bear Marriage Podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire from tolovehonorandvacuum.com, where we like to talk about healthy, evidence-based, biblical advice for your marriage and your sex life. And I am here with my daughter, Rebecca Lindenbach. Hello. And we're going to have, well, an interesting podcast today because we have some big questions to answer. Before we get to that, though, a couple of really cool announcements. We are not going to be to love, honor, and vacuum.com very shortly. I'm not sure exactly what the date is, but we are soon going to be baremarriage.com. So I want everyone Yay. to know that is coming up. We are rebranding. Rebecca's husband, Connor, has been in the thick of this, working very long hours for a yes, long time. Please pray for my husband. He's yes, quite stressed. He, he's, he's working he's, very hard. We're trying to streamline the site. I mean, we started this blog in 2008 and it has code upon code upon code. <laughs> yeah. For it, anyone who knows anything about blogging and web development, picture the kinds of things that we did in 2008 on the HTML when we were still using HTML mm-hmm. as our primary coding language. It, it's a really big mess. There's a lot of redundancies and it's just a really clunky back end issue. Yes. Plus, we're also, we had to weed through the posts because we're only taking over the ones we really like. So we're leaving about 2,000 posts behind and we're only taking about 1,000 with us. And so just pray that Google still likes us afterwards, but that will be coming soon. We're trying to update and we're trying to do the best that we can for our audience and keep true to our evidence-based approach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that means rebranding and changing the focus and getting rid of the stuff that we don't think accurately reflects what we believe anymore um, because we've just learned more as we've researched more. And that kind of brings me to what I want to talk about today. Because our aim at the Bear Marriage Podcast is to be evidence-based. So we want to be biblical, but at the same time, Jesus said that you you can judge things by their fruit. And Mm -hmm. so we need to look at the fruit of different teachings and make sure that we're being accurate in what we teach and that it's helpful, not harmful. Yeah. And I would actually argue that looking for fruit is not extra to being biblical. Mm -hmm. That's actually a biblical mandate. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And all of you know, as we've been sharing over the last year about the the pushback that we've had from a number of the powers that be in the evangelical world who aren't happy with what we're doing and who think that we're stepping outside our role and we're not doing things in a kingdom way. And by calling by calling for sex to be something which is mutually pleasurable, we are somehow distorting what God intended because God intended men to like sex and women not to or something. I don't know. <laughs> yep. Yep. It's right. Re- it's really quite funny the the com- the complaints that we get. So, we've had a lot of complaints from that side of things and we've been pushing back a lot there. Um what some of you may not know is that we've also had some critiques from the other side. Mm-hmm. And these are quite serious ones that we do want to address because they're important and it's people that we care about mm-hmm. uh, who have been quite hurt and we want to make sure that we're dealing with this in, in a good way. So here's the issue. Some people have been upset saying that we've been too easy on porn users. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the problem stems from the fact that we found that a, roughly 50% of married evangelical men currently have a relationship with porn. Which extent. I will say is horrific. Right. But they're, they they believe that the numbers should be close to 80 to 90%. Yeah. And so they, they feel that we're hurting the cause by downplaying the problem. And to be fair, we also actually found that over 80% of men have ever seen pornography. I mm-hmm. think there's a lot of confusion here uh, because a lot of studies find that almost all men have a lifetime history of using pornography. But when we look at currently in this very specific subgroup, it's closer to 50%, which is still horrific. One in two, mm-hmm. that's not okay. It should not be that high. So when people say it's actually 80 to 90% of men, well, we actually agree that lifetime that's true. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's a little bit of a misunderstanding about how, what the numbers actually say there. Right. And then the other issue is that they feel that lately, especially, I have been downplaying the importance of porn or the problems that porn causes because I've been saying that porn alone isn't the thing that causes the most damage. It's the complete picture. And we need to look at the complete picture. And they feel that that means that I've I've been downplaying porn. And I understand that. I yeah. understand that that fear. And so I want to get into this today. And I want to explain what it is that we do believe and what it is that we did find. All right. So let's talk about why people are angry. We've kind of touched on this, but I really think that 
overall, what this comes down to is for years, and we're talking decades, mm -hmm. women married to abusive porn using men who have porn pornography addictions, who do not get help, who have a pornified style of relating and who take it out on their wife, they have been ignored. They've been completely silenced. What have they yeah. been told? Have more sex so he stops watching porn. He's watching porn. Hmm. Are you sure that you're spicy enough in the bedroom? Maybe if you were just hot enough, he wouldn't want to look at other women. Maybe you should try to lose 20 pounds. Like that's what these women have been told. And they've also been told submit. You just need to submit yes. more. You need to, you, marriage is to make you happy. Or sorry, marriage is to make you yeah, holy, no, holy, not, not happy. happy. I have such a visceral reaction to that that I cannot say it without accidentally messing it up. Right. Yeah. No, but this, that's that's what they've been told, right? And so for years and decades, these women have been completely systematically erased mm -hmm. and have been given over to the urges and the abuse of porn using men. Mm -hmm. And so when we say our study found that porn alone does not tend to destroy marriages or even be a predictor of having a very unhappy marriage, mm -hmm. that of course is going to put the prickles up, right? Like, mm -hmm. of course you're going to get your back up about that. And let's, and let's just be clear here. We have always said that porn is unacceptable. Oh yeah. <laughs> we have always said this is this is a deal breaker. You need to draw a boundary. You need to say no more. There needs to be a no tolerance policy like every time I talk about porn, I say there needs to yeah. be a no tolerance policy. Yeah. That porn is bad no matter what. Yeah. That that porn is destructive. That well, porn contributes to sex trafficking. Exactly. Like I've never wavered on that. Every time I talk about porn, I say that. No, and by the way, us finding and us finding that that pornography alone is not a predictor of whether or not your marriage is going to be unhappy or not, or a very strong predictor, does not mean that we're like, well, maybe we were wrong. Maybe porn is okay then. Mm -hmm. No, it just means we have to look a little bit deeper to figure out what the problem is. Because no matter what, even if even if watching pornography made your marriage better, mm -hmm. we would still be against pornography simply because of how objectifying, lustful, sinful mm -hmm. it is. Yeah. So let's just be clear here. And okay. it doesn't. It doesn't make your marriage. No, marriage it doesn't. Better. It, it it always makes your marriage worse. It does because yes. there's a strong dose response effect here. So yes. even a little bit of porn makes your marriage a little bit worse. It's yes. just that porn alone does not dictate how destructive the marriage becomes. It's and it's, it doesn't it's dictate whether or not picture. <laughs> and yeah. Porn alone does not dictate whether somebody can recover or not. Mm -hmm. There's a bigger picture. And that's what we want to talk about. And I think there's also a misunderstanding of, of how we at Bare Marriage, it's a live on vacuum.com, whatever you want to call it <laughs> in the transition, how we see our role. Because I kind of see us, and, and what do you think of this, Rebecca? Like we're out there trying to help people identify, okay, what is healthy? What is normal? And and when is it not healthy and when is it not normal? <laughs> and when it's not healthy and when it's not normal, I point people to other people. Yeah, we refer. We refer. I'm I'm kind of like a big triage, okay? <laughs> and and as soon as I hear, okay, your husband is porn addicted and he won't stop, you need to go see Betrayal Trauma Recovery. You need to go see Sarah McDougall. Yeah. You need to go see Natalie Hoffman. He needs um, to read books by Andrew Bowman and Michael J. Cusick. Yeah, you yeah. need you need to go to these guys for him to get help. You need to talk to Leslie Vernick. Like we we refer out. It's not we don't see our job as helping you get over the addiction, although we like to we like to give you lots and lots of info about that. <laughs> but we're going to point you to other experts because that's not our expertise. Our expertise is we do these massive surveys, <laughs> and massive studies, and we look at what, what information and what messages out there are harmful and which ones are helpful. And we try to, to get to the heart of all of it. And part of the way that I really see myself as helping people recognize when what you're going through is actually worse than the average so that wow. we can take your problem more seriously. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a big part of why I talk about abuse so much is like, hey, okay, that ain't normal. That ain't healthy. That ain't right. You got to go get some help. And that's how I see my role with, with porn and marriage too, is let's figure out whether you should be on the road to like, okay, this, this isn't a marriage killer and you can actually recover from this is, or, oh my gosh, <laughs> please get to help. That ain't okay. <laughs> like yeah. red flags are going off so much right now. And, and you may not understand that this isn't normal and this isn't healthy, but this is seriously not normal and you need some help. And, yeah. and so that's what I've been trying to do. And so I thought in this podcast, we could walk through what that kind of porn triage would look like so that people can better understand what we mean when we talk about the whole picture. Mm -hmm. Here's an example. Okay. Let's talk about medicine for a second. <laughs> 
-hmm. We have two different kinds of medications, blood thinners and blood clotters. Mm -hmm. They do opposite things. (laughs) They are needed for opposite problems. Okay. So uh, everyone knows Joanna's told these stories. Joanna has a blood clotting disorder, so she needs blood clotters. And she's almost actually died a couple of times from this. Like it's a, it's, it's serious. She really needs blood clotters. They are a life-saving medication. It's Mm -hmm. really good for her. However, if you are someone who is at a high stroke risk, mm-hmm. blood clotters are actually potentially deadly. Right. So if Joanna went around being like, oh my gosh, this medication is awesome and gave it to every single person she knows, including the 78-year-olds on stroke risk, <laughs> she might kill people. Yes. But similarly, there's other people who are at stroke risk who need blood thinners. And for them, it's a similarly life-saving medication. And mm-hmm. if they were to give the blood thinners to someone like Joanna, that would be very, very bad. Right. <laughs> that would be very bad. Okay. Yeah. So does that mean that we shouldn't have blood clotters because of the people with blood thinners? No. Does it mean we shouldn't give blood thinners because of the people who need blood clotters? No. <laughs> it means both people matter. Yeah. So we both have blood thinners and we have blood clotters. And then we have something called arsenic. <laughs> yes, exactly. So we have people like Emerson Egridge, for example, who will say things, well, no, love and respect is only for healthy marriages. And it's like, mm, no, it's not. Because mm-hmm. it's not actually an evidence-based treatment for anything. Love and respect, the evidence shows that it hurts everyone or it just happens to not hurt some people. Yes. It's like arsenic. Some people might be able to handle eating enough arsenic. Other people, the arsenic might kill them. Mm -hmm. You know, there, I don't know. There might be something like that. But this is not the same as two things that both work, but Mm -hmm. for different populations. Okay, I don't know why, but I'm having flashbacks to the Princess Bride. I've developed an immunity to iocane powder. (laughs) wasn't good for him. It just wouldn't kill him. Okay. That's the difference. Yeah. Let's call it iocane powder. There's some people who are immune to iocane powder potentially, but it's still not good for you. Mm-hmm. It's not like my life was saved because I had iocane powder. Okay. Right. So there's some no. things which are just plain poison and we never ever yeah. want to share anything that's just plain poison, no. but sometimes something would be poisonous for you. Yes. But it actually helps other people. Yeah. It's so life-saving for someone else. The idea yeah. of, I mean, that's the whole point of Gretchen Baskerville's whole thing, the life-saving divorce. Mm-hmm. We all know that some divorces are terrible, mm-hmm. but some divorces are life saving. Yeah, and so we have to distinguish the two. And so what? I, so let's just take let's just take a walk through this, because I, I want to divide people into two groups when it comes to to porn use in marriage. So remember, all porn use in marriage is bad. Nothing can be tolerated. We need to have a no tolerance policy. Set boundaries. No more porn. But. When you find out that your husband or your wife is using porn, I think you can kind of put it into two different groups. And I'm oversimplifying here and I understand that, but just for the sake of this podcast and the way that I normally think about it, let's just, let's just choose two groups. One group would be where the aim at first is recovery. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, we've heard about porn. We've discovered the porn use, but we're going to try to work on it and hopefully salvage the marriage. That's, that's, that's going to be our first aim. The other aim is just safety. Yeah. And <laughs> like, before you can know whether or not you're in that first group, you have to go through the questions to make sure you're not in the second group. It's not right. try the first group. And then if that doesn't work, try for the second group. It's first no. of all, let's rule out the second group first. Yes. Because, you know, we're, we're not saying that if you, if you separate, get safety, prioritize safety, prioritize making a life for yourself and your kids where you're safe outside of your husband, we're not saying that that can never lead to recovery or reconciliation in the marriage. It's just, that's not the goal because the priority right now is making sure you're safe because you are not currently safe. So let's, let's look through some questions that can help us understand if we're in, uh, dangerous marriage where the priority is going to be get to safety or whether it's like, okay, no, I think this is actually doable and we're going to work towards recovery. So we're going to give you a list and I'm going to put these, this list in the podcast notes. This isn't necessarily definitive. There's probably other questions to ask, but this is a good start. So this is, this is our attempt at starting this conversation. Okay. Mm -hmm. So number one, is there any other type of abuse in the marriage? Yep. Like, is, is there financial abuse? Is there any physical abuse? Is there emotional abuse? Is there coercive control going on? Is there emotional abuse of the kids? Is there any kind of other abuse? Mm-hmm. Additionally, has the porn use escalated into hiring escorts, prostitutes, or visiting strip clubs? Mm-hmm. Even online chats, um, those kinds of things, online uh, emotional affairs, mm-hmm. anything like that. 
So has it escalated beyond porn use? Has the porn use led to a loss of employment? I mean, mm -hmm. I, I know some guys, they, they've lost like three or four jobs because they were caught using porn at work. Or well, even like disciplinary action at work. Even if yeah. it's not full loss of employment, has he had to be disciplined at work because the porn use, he's not able to not use porn on the work computer. Mm -hmm. Is the porn use accompanied by other addictive behaviors, substance abuse, gambling, et cetera? Has the porn use spilled into the bedroom in forms of sexual coercion? Does he ask for outlandish things? Um, has there been sexual assaults? Is he forcing you to act out fantasies? Uh, we hear from a lot of women uh, in focus groups where abusive porn addict husbands would bring home things like wigs or sex toys that they didn't want to use, but mm -hmm. he said you have to. Mm -hmm. Have the children been exposed to porn, either mm -hmm. intentionally or not? Yeah, because if it was unintentional, it still happened and if he's not willing to take responsibility for that and be and if that's not a major wake-up call mm -hmm. i don't really know what else to say yes and remember that in most jurisdictions i know in canada at least i can't speak for the states is it the same in the states i'm pretty sure it is in the uk i would assume it is in, in many jurisdictions in the u.s but showing porn to minors counts as child abuse it's yes yeah, child sexual assault yeah yeah mm -hmm. Additionally, we do have to talk about what kind of porn is being watched. There are some kinds of porn that are immediately called to the police station, mm -hmm. okay? If there is ever anything with children involved, that is yeah. not a question of can he be restored? It doesn't matter. Call the police. Yeah. Get the cops involved. That is serious. Mm -hmm. Additionally, you know, we always talk about how a lot of porn has a lot of violence in it. There are different levels. Mm -hmm. um, there are some things that it doesn't matter if he says, well, this, this or that. Like, there are some things that are just... It, it's it's really dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, and you can trust your gut on that as well, right? Like if you don't feel safe because of what he's watching. Yeah. Yeah. Is the porn use accompanied by great secrecy? So mm -hmm. do you feel like you don't know anything that's going on in his life? Does he keep his phone, his computer hidden from you? Is he just not telling you where he's been? That kind of thing? Yeah. Are there big swaths of time that you can't account for? Does mm -hmm. he get defensive? Ask him questions? Yep. Additionally, has the porn use been accompanied by anger, heightened emotions, or failure to be decent father or decent person in general? Mm -hmm. um, like, is his porn use, in essence, changing his personality? Yeah. And then here's an important one. Has recovery been supposedly ongoing for years, but no progress is ever made? So let me give you an example of this one. I just, I recently got uh, a DM on Instagram um, where a woman said, my husband has been helping a friend who is going through a separation. They've been married for a decade and have several children. Both grew up in the evangelical church and have been inundated with all the bad teachings around sex, intimacy, and marriage, and the fact that men are just born loving beasts. Sadly for this couple, it played out for the husband exactly like that, and he has a severe addiction to porn and masturbation. My husband is encouraging the guy to get the help, therapy, and serious addiction counseling he needs from professionals, but he's very much convinced I can do it on my own, yet he can't seem to stay clean for more than a day or two. Yeah, and that's if you can't seem to stay clean for even more than like 48 hours, but you still think you can do it on your own, that means that you don't really want to get over it. Yep. Yeah, or if you've been in recovery for like eight years and every month there's a big binge, are you really in recovery? And so here's a list. And again, I will put these in the podcast notes. But if any, if these things are true, like even if one of them is true, we have to then, have a serious conversation about safety. Then we're not looking at a recovery route. Okay. Well, I'm not saying recovery isn't possible. I'm saying that you as the spouse, your first job, your first priority right now should be making sure that you and the kids are safe mm -hmm. because you're not currently in a safe relationship. And this is what I think we're getting mixed up with a lot with a lot of people, because I was having a conversation with one woman in our Facebook comments who is saying like, you know, but we know that what you're saying is that there are guys who are good guys who they watch pornography and they can have recovery. We know that you're saying that, but I, I've talked to women who are married to these men and, you know, they're good guys, but like they've hired prostitutes because of their porn addiction or like, you know, they're good guys, but they've lost jobs because of porn addiction. Like, no, 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 no. Then we're in a different category. I'm like, you, you can't say like, oh, well, they're a good guy, but they also hire prostitutes and escorts because of their porn addiction. Like these are, this is why we need a triage idea. Like good guy mm -hmm. doesn't just mean overall they're a nice person to be around. Yeah. We're talking about character here. We're talking about someone who has ownership, who has not been, who has not allowed pornography to actually infiltrate their brain in the same way and change who they are. Mm -hmm. um, someone who hasn't become an abuser. 
And that's that's really what we're talking about with now as we go to that second group, the the group of people for whom, you know, yeah, as a couple, you can work towards restoration and rehabilitation mm -hmm. and all that stuff. And so now for the second group, if this is someone who says, yeah, I actually want to get recovery, I want to recover, I want to end this. And by the way, we do know that every single person who is an addict will say that they will stop and oh, well, it was only one time and they lied. Okay, we mm -hmm. know that we know that the people who are in the bad group have also said the same things as the people in the good group. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that everyone who says that they will stop and that they they really are taking this seriously is an abusive addict. Yes, it's That's like the 80, the it's like it's like Emerson Egerich with the uh, you know eighty five percent of of men are stonewallers when the yeah. actual quote was that eighty five percent of stonewallers are male. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah so like say like you know ninety five percent of uh, you know abusive men will say that they you know will quit pornography does not mean that ninety five percent of people who say they will quit pornography are abusive men. Yeah, and so this is the thing. So there there is a large group of women who are married to men who are such unrepentant use, porn users that the main party has to be safety. But then there's another group. And this, this is a group that's really important to talk about. <laughs> and that's a group where I would say that, okay, you find out about the porn use, but your, your first priority is really working towards recovery. Mm -hmm. um, and here's what that group might look like. So they're not blaming blaming you. They're not mistreating you. And they haven't allowed porn to infiltrate your mind. And we did find that there were a substantial percentage. It was a minority, but there was a minority of porn users. And it was quite substantial who did watch porn occasionally or rarely, who didn't have a pornified style of relating. So they didn't feel entitled to sex. They still, you know, worked at their marriage. <laughs> you know, they still love their wives. Um, so they just, they had a very different, they, they had more or less a healthy way of looking looking at marriage and porn was this habit that was bad and wrong and couldn't be tolerated, but it wasn't affecting necessarily how they treated their marriage and they actually wanted to stop. Yeah. Versus blaming their inability to stop on their wife. Right. So what does recovery look like? Number one, they own their problem and they don't blame it on you. <laughs> They're like, okay, this is my problem and I'm going to stop. Um, it's not accompanied by a pornified style of relating. So they haven't been trying to force you or coerce you into anything in the bedroom. They haven't been blaming you. It's it's not like that at all. They are going to take the initiative to get help. Yeah. So they're going to look for the books to read. They're going to look for the accountability groups. Yeah, they're not um, going to drag their feet. They're going to ask you kind of like, what do you need so that I can rebuild trust? And they're going to go at your pace. They're unlike that guy in the original letter saying, I can do it on my own mm -hmm, for years. Mm -hmm. No, they're going to own this and they're going to take it seriously. They're going to stick with the program. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they're going to willingly give up privacy and secrecy yeah. so that you can feel safe because they know that they are the ones responsible for rebuilding trust. Yeah. They know that they are the ones who caused pain. They know mm -hmm. that this isn't about them. Yeah. And I want to, I want to read you a story of a couple that would fall under that category. Okay. So here's an email that I got. And this, this, this email came in after a lot of stuff erupted on Facebook about this a couple yeah. of weeks ago. And, you know, where I was saying that porn actually is recoverable in a lot of situations. And I was getting a lot of pushback for that. So this woman sent me an email and she said, my husband told me about his porn use when our second born was a baby. It was when we were laying in bed to sleep one night after being at a marriage conference at our church. There was a segment on porn use that I tuned out because it didn't apply to us. Little did I know my husband was sitting there during the segment feeling completely convicted. I was so hurt and felt so rejected because this had been going on since before we got married and during our early marriage. And during the times when I was having my two children, my most mentally vulnerable time of life, I had no clue. I reacted very calmly, held him and reassured him while he cried in my arms, literally the only time he has ever cried. Not that he doesn't show emotion, he does. I truly believe this was the spirit allowing me to react this way because it helped start some healing between us. I am normally very outspoken and blunt, but I do feel like I reacted this way out of fear as well, believing the lies that I grew up with that were telling me it was my fault for him going to porn instead of me. He always took the blame and would never put that on me, but I perceived it as my fault due to the teachings I grew up with. 
We opened a line of communication between us that had never been there before and only had one small mishap a few months after, but he was able to quit completely and in turn actively started taking ownership in his part of our relationship in lots of different ways. Then along came the great sex rescue, which was completely life-changing for us. We talk almost every day about how to keep working towards a better marriage and relationship, although I don't know how it could get any better. We are in an amazingly healthy place now and have full trust in one another. I tell you this entire story to get to the point. We talked frequently about how he was able to quit so easily. Neither one of us could understand how it was pretty easy for him because everything we had been told was pointing us down a long, dreadful road to recovery. Enter in your posts and comments we have seen recently about not all porn use being the same. It all started to make sense. My husband never combined his porn use with a pornified style of relating, with entitlement, abuse, or anything like that. He has always seen me as an equal to him and has never blamed me for something because of the fact that I am a woman. He was able to see his wrong, acknowledge it, take full responsibility, and was willing to repent and change his ways. This explains why he was able to recover quickly compared to everything we have been told. There is hope for men who struggle and it doesn't always mean divorce, thank God. Okay, so here's my question after reading that letter, because this, this is my concern in this whole conversation, is what happens to a woman who's married to a genuinely good man like that when all she has heard is that porn will wreck the marriage or that there is no chance for recovery? Yeah. Because I think a lot of the conversation that we've been having about porn lately has been to elevate the problem of porn to such an extent that it's the one thing you can't get over. Yep, exactly. Or that men, if they've used porn, will always lie. Mm -hmm. Our goal with our research is that we have the whole picture. Mm -hmm. We already know that a lot of times women are told really harmful stuff that makes them stay with abusers through things like women's Bible studies. Yes. Okay? Like, let's, let's all think about a situation where... There's six women in a small group. Betty Ann is running this small group. And Betty Ann is talking about how her and her Michael, you know, str he struggled with porn addiction early in their marriage. And it was really hard. And she felt very hurt. And uh, she just decided to be his biggest cheerleader and his biggest support. And you know what? Like, she just managed to... Uh, be there for him and to support him and with her help and with God's help, he got through his addiction and they're just so much stronger now. And really because of that, you just need to recognize if you pray hard enough and if you're just <laughs> nice enough to him, he's going to stop using porn. And isn't this just so lovely? Right. And meanwhile, <laughs> Rachel is sitting there in the small group whose husband is bringing home wigs from work or mm -hmm. is having fits of anger at her if she says no to having sex and who will be fine for a really long time, but then he'll start going into a porn binge and will start taking out anger on the kids and on her. And mm -hmm. she's thinking, I just need to try harder. I mm -hmm. just need to try harder. No, mm -hmm. Betty Ann needs to sit down and realize that she is in a totally different scenario Mm -hmm. than many other women. And that her belief that it's because she prayed hard enough is not based in evidence. Right. Mm -hmm. Her belief that it's because she was just nice enough to her husband he stopped using pornography is not evidence-based. Right. She needs to be quiet. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> Do you want a healthy way to talk to your kids about sex and porn and temptation and all those weird subjects that just get so awkward? We have a course called The Whole Story. It was done by my daughters, Rebecca and Katie, the girls version a couple of years ago. It's a video-based online course and it's awesome. It tells them all the facts about sex, puberty, and growing up, including conversations about porn. And then after we released that, we released a boys version with Sheldon Neal and with both of my sons-in-law. It's if you want an easy way to open up these conversations, check out the whole story. It isn't a replacement. It is a resource for you to use so that you can start having some of these hard conversations with your kids and guide them in the right direction. So check out the whole story at tolovehonorandvacuum.com. Yeah. But then on the other side, what happens if you have a woman, let's call her Carissa, who is like this letter writer, whose husband comes to her, who she's in a marriage that she loves. She doesn't mm -hmm. want to get out of this marriage. She loves this marriage. She loves her husband. She loves her family. She loves her kids. She loves her life. And, and, her, kid, and her kids love their dad. Her kids love their dad. He's an mm -hmm. awesome dad. Like they have friends. Their family is fantastic. She has fun with him. They're happy. And then he drops this bombshell on her. He confesses her this, this secret sin he's had for, for a while. And she's just like, what do I do? And she goes online. What's the equivalent of the, of the women's small group? 
Mm-hmm. What happens if all she hears is that this is the worst case scenario? Yep. Like, you know what? This is so bad that you should get divorced. If you choose not to get divorced, that's on you. Mm-hmm. But this is so bad that there is no real recovery from it. Because that is what we hear a lot of times. And what people say is, well, there is recovery, but it takes like nine years. Yeah. And it's like, well, that's not research based as far as I can tell in the general mm-hmm. public. It may very well be true of that initial first group of men who are also the pornified style of relating and who are abusive and who have mm-hmm. other issues. What about the guys for whom it was a bad habit that they can honestly pretty much quit? Yeah. Um, we need to talk about both sides because both of them were having the equivalent of being in that small group and getting the information from other women who don't have the full picture. Yeah. So the blood clotter was hearing the blood thinner and the blood thinner was hearing the blood clotter. And both of them probably needed to hear the other person's stuff, right? Rachel mm. needed to be told, this is not normal. This is abuse. You need to get out. But yeah. Carissa needs to be told, hey, let's talk. Well, she doesn't even tell Betty Ann was saying because no one needs to be told Betty Ann is saying. Right, but she needs to be told yeah. a an evidence-based mm-hmm. response saying, hey, Here's how we recover from porn addiction. Here's how you can know if it's kind of in the cards for your marriage. Mm-hmm. And here's the way forward. Yeah. And, you know, there, there have been studies, too, that have shown that when people are in a difficult situation, you can actually make that situation worse mm-hmm. if you tell them that it is traumatic. Yeah, because, again, this is not actually an evidence-based thing to tell them. So there's mm-hmm. there's a study that I studied when I was in university, and we talk about it all the time in psychological circles, about how there's actually a meta-analysis that has shown that presenting a single-session post-traumatic event uh, debriefing in mm-hmm. workplaces that have had traumatic events happen actually increases the rates of PTSD. Yeah, so play, workplaces where there's been a shooting or where someone has died or where there's just been something really something awful. really quite traumatic. That is yes. genuinely traumatic. Some yes. people are going to get PTSD from this. This is yes. a legitimately traumatic thing that happened. Mm-hmm. Not everyone will get PTSD because a lot of people have a lot of resilience. And mm-hmm. uh, resilience doesn't mean that you're a better or stronger person than anyone mm-hmm. else. It's just a very morally neutral measure. That right. we have inside and, and some people are going to get PTSD from things that other people wouldn't. Like for, for some, some of us just have different things that are going to set us off. <laughs> I have post-traumatic uh, stress disorder from postpartum uh, from my uh, from my birth experience with Alex. Mm-hmm. Fewer than 30% of women who go through what I did have PTSD. Right. Fewer than 30%. I'm in the minority. Okay. Yeah, and, and you don't mean 30, fewer than 30% of people who gave birth. You mean fewer no. than 30% of people who had the Who had the problems. kinds of things that I had happen yeah. have PTSD. Yeah, I right. am in the minority, okay? Mm-hmm. But it happened to me. Mm-hmm. It was a traumatic thing. However, if you go in and you tell people what happened to you was traumatic and we're going to now give you treatment as if you were traumatized, mm-hmm. we actually see an increase in post-traumatic stress disorder rates. Right. And that is kind of the definition of causing harm, (laughs) making it more likely that someone will experience PTSD Mm -hmm. is very harmful. For those of us who have any form of PTSD, it's not fun. Yeah. It's a really, really horrible thing to go through. So what we're saying is what what studies have shown is a better alternative is to say, hey, if you need support or help, here's where you can go. Mm -hmm. And you offer it and it's there. And if people need it, you know what? They tend to go. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, every time that we talk about this kind of stuff or anytime we identify something like this, hey, say, listen, Sarah McDougall's group's awesome. Talk to Natalie Hoffman. Talk to Leslie Vernick. You know, mm-hmm. we we point to all these different people where it's like, hey, there's trauma stuff going on. There's abuse stuff going on. There's mm-hmm. people and there are support groups for you. Yeah, but we don't want to send someone to a, to a trauma recovery group if they're in a marriage where recovery is actually quite possible and these women don't have trauma yet. <laughs> and that's exactly it. If they have trauma, even if they're in a recoverable marriage, then of course, get mm-hmm. trauma recovery. But don't yeah. do trauma. Don't don't go for trauma recovery if you're not traumatized. And let's and let's just not tell women that your husband using porn use will automatically be traumatic because it simply isn't for everybody. Yes. You know, it is it is for a lot. And again, dose response effect. The more porn use, the more it's accompanied by all those things that put your marriage in the dangerous category, the more you're going to have trauma. But even then, it's not 100%. So we just we just are asking that we give people the whole picture and that mm-hmm. we stay evidence-based. So yeah, like causing trauma <laughs> where it didn't need to happen should not be done lightly. Okay. Mm-hmm. And again, I am saying to someone who is in the minority of people who have experienced PTSD from what I went through. And okay, listen, like this, first of all, I'm not saying that 
uh, my PTSD is the same as PTSD from a long-term abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. It's not. Flat out. I recognize that. That does Mm -hmm. not mean that my experience was not traumatic. It doesn't mean that what I went through wasn't traumatizing and that I was wrong for getting traumatized by that. It just means that the majority of women had resiliency that I did not in this area. Um, And again, resiliency is a morally neutral term. Doesn't mean that you're a better or worse person. I am not a particularly resilient person. (laughs) I I don't actually score that high on resiliency factors. I'm going to tell you this right now, okay? Uh, So this is just the thing some of us have, okay? And I often find that even myself, what happens is because uh, my experience is that birth is inherently dangerous and traumatizing. Mm-hmm. I find it very difficult to take anyone seriously who has a different experience than me. Yeah. I find it very difficult. I have friends who are like, wow, birth is so empowering. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, right. Shove it up. Right. Like, you know what I mean? Like, just, just, I'm going to be honest. That's, that's where it goes in my head. I'm like, okay, everyone's lying. If anyone mm-hmm. watched Gilmore Girls, like the scene where Lane comes home, it's like, it's okay. I know it's all a lie. When she has sex for the first time on her honeymoon, mm-hmm. she's like, everyone's lying. I know sex doesn't feel that good. That's mm-hmm. how I feel about birth and it being empowering. Okay. Everyone knows it's just traumatic. It's not mm-hmm. actually a really good thing. That's not actually true. Mm-hmm. I am in the minority of women. I really am. A lot of women do not find birth traumatizing. Most do not find it very pleasant. Mm-hmm. But most of them are not going to have PTSD afterwards. Right. Okay. But I also find myself like on Reddit automatically mm-hmm. wanting to downvote anyone who's like birth is beautiful. <laughs> okay. I'm going to be honest. Yeah. And when you, and when you read studies that like, yeah. you know, the best birth outcomes are, you know, like, where... Like- Studies, studies that show like a second degree tear as a better outcome than a C-section. Mm-hmm. I personally am like, oh, heck no. I would take my C-section. Right. Heck no. Or, mm-hmm. uh, or like birth, birth um, studies that show that, for instance, giving birth in a birthing center often leads to better outcomes. Mm-hmm. And I look at that and I laugh. I'm like, oh, well, that study has to be wrong. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Take a step back. Get out mm-hmm. of my triggered experience. Like get, I can feel myself getting into my whole fight or flight you know, situation, because I'm hearing about someone giving birth not in a hospital, and I think I would have died. Mm-hmm. That's where I have to step back and realize that my experience is incredibly valid and very real and is accounted for in that research. Mm-hmm. I just happen to not be the majority. Yeah. I happen to not be in the majority. That does not mean that my story is not in that research. Mm-hmm. What it does mean is that fewer people will have what happens to me happen if they do X, Y, Z. Right. Doesn't mean everyone. I did X, Y, Z. And it still happened. Yeah. Okay. But it just means that I have to step back and realize that there are other factors and that I happen to not be in the majority for this thing. Yeah. And this is where looking at some of the research is really important because, you know, our goal, we don't want to just help people who are in the midst of this right now. I really want to make sure that in 20 years, fewer couples are dealing with this. Yeah. Like I want to change the conversation so that we're tying it with this in a healthy way from the beginning so that fewer people get into it. And that means we need to look at what the research says makes recovery harder. And one of the things that makes recovery more difficult is when we tell people <laughs> that recovery yeah. is almost impossible. And that's one of the things that that Samuel Perry found um, in his research. Yeah. And I know a lot of people don't like Samuel Perry. His research has found that overall Christians do tend to use porn less often than non-Christians, but mm-hmm. they tend to get more addicted and they have a harder time stopping. Yep. So what does that actually tell us? What he what he found in essence is believing having super shame inducing messages around pornography makes it less likely that when a man wants to stop watching pornography, he will feel able to or he will have the the capacity to do so. Or when a woman wants to stop. Or a woman as well, right, yeah. Mm -hmm. But when someone who's watching pornography feels, uh, has these incredible, like, you know, porn rewires your brain. It's a permanent thing. Uh, You've now, you know, in essence, essence, you're damaged goods. It's the same thing Mm -hmm. we told girls during purity culture. Yeah. It is. It is. It's almost like a new purity culture. Like yeah, I really think it is. I think that pornography is the new purity culture. I think that girls were told, you know, if you do anything sexual, you will have less to offer your future husband. And men are told, because I know girls obviously watch pornography as well. And I think the messages can be very damaging to them as well. There is a level where mm-hmm. um, men are seen as forever damaged and changed. 
mm-hmm. by pornography use in the way that we talk about it. And I think it's the new, I just, I really think it's new purity culture. I think that what we're saying is even one viewing of porn makes you no longer marriageable. It makes you no longer able to be in a relationship. It means that you're damaged goods. You know, the way that we said, well, girls, you should keep your legs shut because boys want to marry a virgin. It's uh, guys, make sure that you don't ever watch porn because girls aren't going to want to marry you if you've ever seen pornography. And now consider the fact that most guys see pornography by accident before age 13. Mm -hmm. And what does that tell them? Yeah. You know, this is this is why we see it's so hard for Christians to stop watching pornography. So they believe I'm already lost. I really do believe that's a lot of it. And we have this all or nothing thinking. What happened in purity culture was girls were told, you know, even kissing a boy is wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so once they've kissed a boy, well, they've already done it. So now I don't have any right to say no. Yeah. And we, we heard that in our focus groups over and over again of women who had gone further than they wanted to, had even been sexually assaulted. And they now felt I can't say no because I'm damaged goods. Yeah. And so it made they they kept getting into these diff- these very destructive relationships. And if we tell boys, you're now damaged goods, how do they fight against porn? Yeah. How does the 12 year old who's been watching porn for a year already mm-hmm. because he was exposed to it at age 11, mm-hmm. we're talking doesn't have his first mustache hair, 11. Yeah. How does he actually recover when everything that he's hearing says pornography is a permanent, long-term, lifelong struggle? You are now damaged. Your brain chemistry is different. You're not going to be able to fully understand sex pot. Like, these things are not evidence-based that we've been telling our young yeah. boys. And again, one of the things that we found is that if a guy uses porn and he quits before he's married, his marital satisfaction is pretty much the same as if he had never used it. So that isn't yeah. true. That's not true. Even if he quits after he's married, marital satisfaction and sexual satisfaction are pr- like they're not pretty, quite as good. But, darn high. but it's not like it's it's not like a huge, huge difference. Okay. Yeah. So so we need to be telling the whole story. That doesn't mean everybody is gonna recover from porn. And giving people all the information mm-hmm. does mean that we give them all the information. That's why we're calling for a triage, okay? Mm-hmm. So that we aren't just shuttling everyone into points recoverable, yay, confetti, balloons, <laughs> and let's all take a picture to celebrate. That's not what we're saying. We're saying let's do an honest-to-goodness triage. Mm-hmm. Let's work through this evidence-based. Yep evidence space. Let's figure out which group are you in. Let's figure out what the next steps are. Let's work through this so that we don't accidentally speak, speak death over relationships because we've given them the wrong solution. Exactly. You know, um, every man's battle, our big beef with that was that it said that every man lusts. Yeah. And so if every guy does it, then there's no point in even trying. Right. And the problem is I'm seeing some of this from the other side where they're saying, well, it has to be 90% of men who use porn. Because 90% of the men I know use porn. You know what? It could actually be very well true that 90% of the men that you know use porn because you could be in that subgroup. But that doesn't mean that 90% of married evangelical men overall use porn. And if you're in a subgroup of 90% of men use porn, you need to get in a different subgroup. Like that is danger. That is red flag. That means that isn't normal or healthy. And, and something needs to change. And that's what we're asking is just that we triage. The fact that some porn use is recoverable does not invalidate the fact that for some women, it's abusive and terrible and isn't going to be recoverable. Yeah. And the fact that for some women, it's terrible and isn't going to be recoverable does not invalidate the fact that for some, it is recoverable. So let me leave you, let me give just one last email. A woman wrote, I completely agree with everything you said about how porn can be recoverable. And I know it's true because I'm living it. I am one of those wives who has an amazingly kind and loving husband, one who is a selfless, patient, gentle lover in bed who makes my pleasure a priority and who also happens to be in recovery. He was an innocent 12-year-old when he first came across porn, and since he didn't have proactive or healthy parents, it turned into a hardcore addiction. But he has never been a misogynist or a narcissist, and he's doing great right now in recovery. He's working through Andrew Bowman's materials, and he's working with a counselor to learn the root, his childhood wounds. He's healing his deepest self, and I couldn't be more proud. I should also mention that my knowledge of porn abuse and healthy relationships was a lifesaver. Because I am informed about porn, we were able to approach his recovery together. I had peace. He was using good materials. No every man's battle in this house. And I knew how to establish proper boundaries without freaking out that our marriage had no future because my husband has a past. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's that's what we wanted to give you today is, is kind of like a way of analyzing an evidence-based way of analyzing 
what is the prognosis of your marriage if you find out there's a porn problem? Yeah. And not everyone's going to fit really easily into those two categories that we gave where it's like marriage is that hundred percent. Yay. It's going to work great. And you just work towards recovery and there's no other problems. No, there's going to be some women for whom it is a deal breaker. And that's, that's your prerogative, you know, like there are, it just because you would be shuttled into one way or the other doesn't mean you have to be in that way. What we would say is that if you, if your marriage um, is in the way where it's more of a safety issue, Mm -hmm. uh, we would highly, highly recommend you be very careful before you just kind of tell yourself it'll be okay. Yes, Um, please. (laughs) Many, many women have done that before you um, and said, it's okay. It's okay. Like it's not that bad. And they, they undermine Mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. and there's going to be other women who, because of maybe their own past history, maybe because of, you know, the way that certain things are Mm -hmm. done, even if they technically mark off all the marks of having a quote unquote healthy relationship with that has a porn problem. Maybe they're saying, you know what? I'm out. I'm out. Um, And frankly, I think that this is one of those areas that there needs to be a lot of grace to understand that this is a, a case by case situation and no one knows your marriage better than you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need mm-hmm. to leave a lot of room for that. We just wanted to make sure that we were able to, as a Christian community, mm-hmm. talk about this with a lot more nuance so that both sides were given the evidence-based prognosis, like you said. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, I have just heard so many heartbreaking stories of women mm-hmm. married to men who are severely addicted to porn, who treat them terribly. And mm-hmm. these women stay for years, hoping it's going to get better. And that's what I just want people to see is there's a big difference (laughs) between someone who has been fighting porn use since they were, you know, 12 and doesn't want to use it anymore and doesn't let it affect the rest of their life. And someone who is honestly narcissistic or, or Or even if they're not fully narcissistic, just they're incredibly Mm -hmm. emotionally immature with no desire to change. Yeah. And those are, those are two different things. And I, I hope that by showing what a recovery path looks like that maybe we can help people who really aren't on that path to recognize it earlier and get to safety. Cause I, I do see, I do see a lot of hurt out there and I don't want that to continue. And so that's why I'd like to be able to, to look at this in two different groups. And then of course it still is up to you what you do. Exactly. (laughs) You know, we're not trying to say that you have to do anything that you have to stay, that you have to leave anything. It's still completely up to you, but we just want to give you the evidence. Everything we do is about making sure you have informed consent. Yes. You know, we've been using that word a lot recently, Mm -hmm. informed consent. You have to have informed consent to know if what he's telling you is true, mm-hmm. you know, informed consent to agree to leave a marriage because you truly know what the situation is informed mm-hmm. consent to stay in a marriage because you do actually know mm-hmm. what the situation is. You know, we need all the information to do that. And I, and I really, I'm really hopeful that as more information comes out, a lot of the, the initial panic mm-hmm. um, will be able to die down because we'll be able to see how no more information is never a threat. More truth is never a threat. It's just, makes things a little more complicated sometimes because it's a lot nicer to have everything in a neat little box where we have one answer for this, for, for one thing. And it's super simple, Mm -hmm. but you know, more information simply means informed consent. It does not mean that uh, one person is silenced. It means that everyone's voice is elevated. Yeah. And speaking of that, we have a good friend of ours, Sarah McDougall, mm-hmm. who is an abuse recovery coach. She has an amazing new app out called Trauma Mamas for people who are in that destructive path where they really need to get to safety. Yes. Uh, this app is great. It's got so many resources to help you sort out what's going on, to help you find help. Um, just can I just say encouragement? Can I just say to the app just looks really good. Like yeah, Sarah like, did a great job making this thing. <laughs> it's like, way to go, Sarah. And it's totally free to download. Yeah. So, so if you're in that situation, or if you know women who are in that situation, please tell them about Trauma Mamas. And Sarah's going to be joining us on the podcast in a few weeks to talk about it. But she shared something on Facebook recently that I just thought was amazing. That was quite similar to what we've been talking about today, how sometimes there are these two different routes and we need to recognize them. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and it was about noticing versus lusting. And I said to Sarah, that's awesome. Can I share it? And she said, sure, go ahead. So this is the audio and video from a Facebook Live, which Sarah did recently. Here we go. Hey, you. So I have been asked a question and I figured it's a question that is probably got a lot more people that wonder it than just the person or two who've asked me. So 
I said, instead of just replying to you, I will do a video about that. The question is, this whole noticing versus lusting discussion. Now, for betrayed partners, this can be super triggering. The idea that my husband, who's been a sex addict or a porn addict, should be able to notice without lusting. Because in your mind, you're thinking, Psh, I don't want him noticing anyone except me. I, I don't want him to notice. I don't want him to notice. He doesn't need to notice. If he's noticing, he's been looking too long. He doesn't need to notice. He just needs to have tunnel vision and get through his day without any kind of noticing or lusting. It's very understandable to feel that way. And I hear women comment on that after having experienced betrayal trauma. It's, it's not unusual to feel that way, that he should not notice anyone in the world. He should be training his eyes only for you. And I would, I would agree that he should be training his eyes only for you. However, I would disagree that it's not okay for him to notice anyone else but he should direct his lust at you because lusting is devouring and consuming and taking for oneself. That's how we generally define it. So lusting after you, again, not okay. He doesn't need to be devouring or consuming you any more than he needs to be devouring or consuming anyone else. Now, I've heard comments like, well, maybe this whole noticing versus lusting discussion is really just trying to get women to be okay with like more soft version of sexual addiction. I don't think that's it at all. So I want to nip that in the bud because there are two types of conversations going on here when we have this discussion. One is the conversation of a betrayed spouse saying, I want my husband to be trustworthy and I want to know that he is absolutely focused on doing whatever it takes to have pure thoughts, to have a clean mind, and to not be objectifying other females or males or children around me. I want to know that his sexuality is healthy and loyal and faithful. And that is an important concept to have, that conversation rather, to have. The other side of this is, what if you are talking to men and boys and young men who are not sex addicts or porn addicts? What if you were talking to partners and spouses who are not dealing with betrayal and maybe they're raising sons. Maybe they're dealing with healthy husbands and that's their life reference point. They are looking for terms that can be used effectively and healthily. Is that a word? Healthily? Healthy terms that are effective to help. Like I'm thinking about me. I have a son who's entering the teenage years. We have to have good phrases and wording to be able to help our sons not become devourers and consumers of women simply for the sake of sexuality. And the conversation about building healthier phraseology and healthier messaging and communication with non-addicted husbands and pre-addicted, hopefully never addicted, sons, boys, teens, it has to be able to exist even if it's not the same conversation that betrayed partners need for their recovery process. Now, one of the questions that I often ask when someone is like, I don't want my husband noticing anyone at all. He doesn't need to notice women. Okay, I understand the pain that sponsors, that initiates that thought. On the other hand, do you really want your husband to completely ignore that women exist? Because if he chooses not to notice women at all and to have blinders on to all females, how is that making the world better for the way men treat women? Because ultimately, that mindset, if we're asking our husbands and teaching our sons as mothers to not notice women at all, to have no noticing, then we are saying that women are either too tempting or too dirty 
or too luscious to interact with on a human equal level. That women must be ignored, that women should be treated as if they don't exist, that women should be avoided, and that is not the answer. That is not a healthy end game for this. So, yes, I can understand how it would be triggering to talk about noticing versus lusting to a betrayed partner who is just deeply desiring for your partner who is an addict to stop lusting. Now, on the same, just along that topic, that line of thinking, it's absolutely possible for the whole, I was just noticing, I wasn't lusting argument to be weaponized by those who are actively addicted, who are not working recovery, and who just want to shut down the accountability from their pain-ridden, betrayed spouses. Absolutely. But I guess here's my thought to that. Someone who is actively living in deceptive sexual reality and causing deceptive sexual trauma. By the way, that's a term from Dr. Omar Manwala's model, the Manwala model. Definitely check that out. But someone who is actively living a deceptively sexual reality, they're going to find absolutely anything that they can to weaponize it, to avoid responsibility until they are willing to take responsibility and stay in healing. So it can be perfectly good as far as the messaging, but they still can find, an addict can still find a way to make it an excuse to avoid accountability. Entirely possible. If your spouse is using otherwise decent concepts or messages to avoid accountability for their addiction or to avoid accountability for their lust, then guess what? It is not necessarily the problem of the message. It could be, but it's not automatically the problem with the message. It is a sign that they are not in recovery. They are not taking their recovery seriously. Put the burden of responsibility where it belongs on the person who is making excuses for lust not on messages that are intended to help educate boys and young men how to avoid becoming addicts. Martin Luther is said to have said that the birds may fly over your head, but you do not have to allow them to nest in your hair, which is kind of the same concept. If you are just noticing an alert in the world around you, it is very likely that you will notice people who are on the surface, who are good looking, people who are on the surface, obviously rude, people who are on the surface, obviously kind. We will notice these things and that is perfectly okay. The problem comes when we have taught our little boys that every time you notice a pretty girl and you think, wow, she's pretty, that somehow you should feel guilty and shameful because you have lusted after her by noticing that she's an attractive human being. That's a terribly damaging message for our boys and young men. So then they feel like they are living in shameful sin simply for being alive and having eyes. We don't want our boys or our girls to be feeling like they have to be completely blind or just have tunnel vision around humans. I think that our goal should be, when we are discussing healthy sexuality, and that's not the same as the betrayed partner or the addict recovery conversation, but when we are discussing healthy sexuality, our goal should be to teach our children and to train ourselves that it is perfectly wonderful to notice beauty, to notice kindness, which is beauty in action, to notice beauty in nature, to notice beauty in people's personalities, to notice beauty all around us. And to also remember that beauty alone does not define a human or an object. And that just because something may seem beautiful to us does not make it ours to take or 
to take in our mind because we see other people as whole creatures with rights and autonomy and personality and personhood. Now, I think it's important to also have a conversation that is different when someone is actively trying to recover from sexual addiction. They may need to take a break from all stimuli for a while and put those blinders on until they are capable of handling it. But even in addiction recovery, being blind or completely refusing to notice other humans, half of the human population, the opposite gender, is not a healthy end game. It may need to be an initial step, but it's not a healthy end game. Can the idea of noticing versus lusting be triggering to betrayed partners? Absolutely. Can it be weaponized by addicted partners who are not working recovery and who are not committed to accountability? Also, absolutely. Is it still necessary to have this conversation and to differentiate between the conversations that are important for healthy building of healthy relationships and healthy young people and healthy sexuality versus the conversations that are necessary for triage and crisis in recovery? Yes, we have to have these conversations. And the messaging for these two types of experience are probably not going to be exactly the same they're not covering the same ground. Thank you for joining us on the Bear Marriage Podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire. Thank you for Rebecca for joining us and Sarah for joining us. Again, those links to Sarah McDougall on Facebook and to her um, app are in the podcast notes. And I will see you again next week for another edition. Bye-bye.